second time, go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim it, proclaim to it the message I gave you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth and sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink. But let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. Lord, thank you for the opportunity to share from your word. I pray you'd be with me as I share and be with everyone as they listen. Um, Speak the message you want us to hear. uh, Encourage us, show us what you want to show us through this passage. And I pray that your mercy would come through clear. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, So if you remember the context of this story, um, we had Jonah being told to go to the Ninevites. He runs as far as he can the other way to flee from God's presence. And then God moves hell and high water to get Jonah back to where he wants him. He uh, manipulates creation, the created order, He throws him into a a fish and he finally gets spat out. And that's where we're up to in the story. And I really want to highlight in this story the mercy of God and how our God is a God of second chances. So remember, uh, God said to Jonah a second time, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach to it the message I will give you. Now that already is amazing to me. If I were God, I would have just let the fish eat Jonah. End of story. <laughs> but um, God commands the fish, and the fish spews Jonah up. And the Hebrew word for spew is ka. Doesn't it just sound like spewing? And so he spews him up onto dry land, and he tells him again, Go. We have a God of second chances. And if we're honest, we need a God of a thousand chances. Again and again and again and again. And so Jonah, he's, his skin by this stage is probably bleached white from the acid in the fish's stomach. He's been in this semi-comatose twilight zone between death and life state for three days. And he comes out. And I don't know what he looked like, but I'm just imagining what the Ninevites must have thought when they saw this guy who'd been spewed out of a fish. And his appearance, I don't think he would have looked like a three-piece suit and anything like that. I think he would have looked terrible. And he turns up, and in God's great mercy, he says, go again, go, go. This time, understandably, Jonah obeys. And you're meant to laugh at that 
that point. There's, there's all these, um, this, is, this story is like a really good script that has a lot of holes that you're meant to fill in yourself, that has a lot of space that you're meant to laugh in. And Jonah's name means dove. And Amittai, his father, that name means faithfulness. So Jonah is like this innocent dove, the son of faithfulness. But it's kind of like a joke because he's far from innocent and he's far from faithful. And so once again, we see God's mercy that God is willing to use a terrible person to bring a great message of, of mercy to other people. God is willing to use a terrible preacher. Now, you, we get the idea that Jonah wasn't too enthusiastic. It says Nineveh was a city so big it took three days to walk through. But Jonah only got one day in, and then he preached a five-word sermon. Just a five-word sermon. In the Hebrew, it's five words. In English, it comes out to about seven or eight words. In 40 days, Nineveh will be overthrown. And you get the feeling from the text that he's kind of giving a half-hearted, do just as much as I need to kind of a go at this preaching thing. And there's so much irony because we all know that Jonah wants the Ninevites to be destroyed. So I'm imagining this guy that, that looked like a zombie coming out of a fish and he hates being in Nineveh and he's preaching and he's going, yeah, in 40 days, you're all going to be destroyed. Yeah, yeah. And he's like really hoping this happens and actually expecting, hoping that it'll happen. And the amazing thing is, perhaps the most amazing part of the book is the response of the Ninevites. So this guy, Jonah, is witness to the greatest revival in the history of the world by giving a reluctant five-word sermon. You can imagine him, this fish-acid man walking through the city, and he sees someone in the marketplace, and he's like, in 40 days, this city's going to be destroyed. And she falls to her knees, and she starts crying out, oh, God, have mercy on me. He's like, what, what? And then he comes a bit further, and he sees maybe a soldier, maybe a soldier that killed one of Jonah's relatives. And he's like, in 40 days, this city's going to be overthrown. And the soldier falls to his knees. And he puts on itchy clothes, sackcloth, to show he's sorry. Oh God, please have mercy. He's like, what? And then he comes along and he sees someone else and someone else, and they're dropping down. And the mercy of God is effective in their lives, and they're just so humble. And it's interesting that it says first, that everyone from the greatest of the least to the least repented and believed God. And then it mentions that the word got to the king, and then he gave out the decree. So it seems to be saying that they didn't do this because the king forced them to do it. They were already repenting of their own will before the, the news got to the king, before he gave this edict. And then when it gets to the king of Nineveh, now you've got to imagine this is the most ruthless empire it was cruel and it was powerful. The most ruthless empire in the world at, up to that point. And the king, what is his response? It's like the head guy of ISIS or Saddam Hussein uh, back in the day or Kim Jong-un, someone like uh, the head of North Korea, someone like that who we, we imagine as just this heartless, cruel dictator. And when the news gets to the king, he takes off his royal robes, he gets off his throne, he puts on sackcloth, he declares a fast, and he goes one step further than his subjects. He sits in ashes 
in dust and ashes. So he's like the most extreme reversal from evil dictator to getting off his throne. In a sense, putting God on the throne and letting God's word dictate what's going to happen in that country. Amazing. And he puts out the edict. And it's for, on behalf of the king and all the nobles, everyone, man and beast, must fast and put on sackcloth and urgently cry out to God. And he says, who knows? Maybe God will have mercy and relent from the disaster he has threatened. Who knows? This king is like the pagan sailors before in the story. He's not even presuming on God's grace. He's so humble, all he can say is, who knows? Maybe. He knows he doesn't deserve it. This is our last-ditch chance. Who knows? And the, and the sailors say to Jonah, come on, call on your God. Who knows? Maybe he won't bring, uh, kill us through this storm. Such humility. And it's a, it's a funny contrast because you've got Jonah who has no compassion for these people at all, only hatred. And you've got the king who is meant to be the worst of the worst. He has great concern for his whole country. He wants them all to be spared. And so he brings the edict that everyone must repent. And there's a, there's a kind of hyperbole to this story because even the animals have to repent. I don't know what that looks like. Can animals be evil? Maybe some of you with pets will say sometimes they can. I don't know. You imagine these cows wearing sackcloth. It's like so weird. <laughs> and they go without food and drink for 40 days. Cows. I was at Beef Week yesterday. And they just don't look like, they almost don't look like sentient beings. You know what I mean? Like, these cows, they're just like, they don't seem very um, much like humans, right? They're just cows. You can imagine these, these cows with sackcloth. It's just so weird. But the whole of Jonah is like that. The whole of the book of Jonah is, here's your expectation, I'm going to flip it around. Here's Jonah, the innocent dove, the son of faithfulness. He runs away from God's presence. Here's these pagan sailors. They call out to God for mercy. And they become followers of Yahweh, of God. Here's the whole of creation, obeying God. And here's God's prophet running the other way. He's not kind of like passive, oh, you know, I'll just ignore it. He's actively rebelling, running as far as he can the other way. Everything's opposite. And it's opposite when you get here as well, because God asks him a second time. And he doesn't even say, Jonah, I'm really disappointed in you. Why did you do that? Nothing. Don't say anything about it. He just says, hey, Jonah, go to the great city of Nineveh. Again, he says it. Preach the message I'll give you. It reminds me of the prodigal son when the, the father is pleading with his elder son. It's this patient pleading, this patience. And it's interesting too, I get the feeling both in this story and the story of the prodigal son that, that God is just waiting for the slightest inclination that we're turning back to him. The slightest mixed motive, impure kind of motives, like I'm half in, I'm half out, maybe, okay, I'll give it a try. Okay, yes, come back. That's his mercy. 
The father in the prodigal son was waiting, waiting. He, wasn't, he didn't say, well, son, now that you're back, you better work for me for 40 years to pay off the money you blew, and you better prove to me that you're serious. Nothing. He just hugs him and kisses him, won't even let the son finish his statement about, oh, I'll be your slave or whatever, and throws him a huge party. And then the elder son is furious, like Jonah is furious. This is the great mercy of God. God has mercy on those who are in his family. And he also has mercy on those who aren't in his family. You can see the unchangeable character of God in this ancient story. This is pre-Jesus, ancient story. But it's the same today. God has the same mercy. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The same mercy and the same threat of judgment. Nineveh was under threat of destruction and judgment, that great city. And every city in the world will one day be destroyed. Even Evan's head will one day be destroyed. They had 40 days, and 40 is like a, a number that's meant to be a time of testing and kind of like sufficient, like you had Jesus tested for 40 days, you had the Israelites 40 years in the desert. It was long enough for them to learn something and turn back. And they turned back. God's great mercy and God's character doesn't change. Although he changed his mind and didn't bring about the destruction he had threatened, his character hasn't changed. He wants them to repent. Why would he send Jonah in the first place if he didn't want them to repent, right? He would have just done it. No warning. Gone. But he wanted them to repent. He wanted to show mercy on them. And he wants to show mercy on you. And he's giving you time. We don't know when our time's up. It's not 40 days. It might be one day. It might be 90 years. We don't know. We don't know when we're going to die. We don't know when Jesus is going to return. That's when the end is, comes for us. There's no, there's no more time. And in the Bible it says that Jesus hasn't come back yet because, not that he's slow, but he's giving time for people to repent because of his mercy. And this puts a great uh, motivation on us. Now's the time to warn people. Now is the time to warn people. There'll be no evangelism in heaven. But now's the time. And so the, the message gets to the Ninevites and they repent. Amazing. Imagine a whole city coming to the Lord. The closest I've ever seen to something like this was when I lived in Beijing uh, many years ago. And over a five-year period, the Christian population tr tripled in that city. Uh, it was still a very unreached city, but man, it was tangible. You would walk around and talk to people. You kept meeting people that had just become Christians. It was amazing. I'd go into a computer shop. Any of you guys here Christians? Yeah, I became a Christian last year. Oh, awesome. Wow. I met 70-year-old ladies on the street. You guys heard about Jesus before? I became a Christian last year. Well, six months ago, I became a Christian. We went to a big government church. It was the same church that... Uh, the presidents of America would visit when they came to China. And it's so funny. They had these two big services in English. 2,000 people in each service, just packed. They couldn't fit everyone in. All these uni students, most of the people, probably 60% of the people who came could not understand English. <laughs> Regine was on the piano and I was on the drums. And people would just walk in off the street not knowing why they came in. They said, I just felt drawn to this building. And they would come in. And there was this worship music in English. And 
People would come in and bawl their eyes out, and they had no idea why, and they couldn't understand the lyrics. <laughs> what, is, what is that? And then they would hear a sermon they couldn't understand. And then at the end of the sermon, when it was all over, they would be filtered off into groups on the side where they would be put into small groups that ran in Chinese. And then they would hear the gospel in Chinese. All these people getting saved. You had the feeling if they put 10 more services that could fit 2,000 people, they would all be full. It was crazy. The sermons were often terrible. The music wasn't, was often terrible. But God was moving, so it didn't matter. Sometimes we would hear these sermons that we thought were so bad. And it was like getting a punch in the gut. We'd turn around and someone, a Chinese person that could understand English, would say, oh, I was so touched by that sermon. Wow, God is so good. I was like, wow, praise God. Awesome. <laughs> it was amazing. I remember catching a, a, a taxi there and I started sharing with the taxi driver. I shared for about maybe 15 minutes and I finished. He said, no, you're not finished. You haven't told me everything. You've got to keep going. All right, so I started again, and I tried to fill in more gaps from creation to Christ all the way through. We finally, maybe 40 minutes later, arrived at the destination. All right, it's time for me to get out. You can't get out of the car. I'm not good at reading. I have bad eyesight. Kind of scary when he's a taxi driver. <laughs> he said, this is my only chance to hear this message. You cannot get out. You have to keep talking to me. Well, I had to get out because I had a meeting I had to go to. So I got the guy's number and I left. Amazing. Just response. See, it's a work of God. I don't know why and when it happens. Most of the time it happens when people pray fervently and there's broad sowing of the gospel. But in the case of Jonah, there was no one praying for that city. It's amazing. It's just God's, God's work and God's power. And we pray it happens to Evan's head. right? We pray it happens to all the great cities of the world. Before I got into mission, I used to think about you know, unreached cities and unreached people. And I would think, maybe there's two or three tribes in the Amazon that still haven't heard of Jesus. That must be about it. Everyone else must be covered, right? Everyone else must have heard by now, right? I didn't know. And so I started doing some research, and it blew my mind. And I did a bit, bit more research recently. And I want to share with you some other great cities, great uh, what's called people groups, ethnic groups, who are like Nineveh. Filled with idolatry, filled with systems and ways of thinking that reject Christ and who have yet to hear the gospel. So Beijing was a big, godless city that I had the privilege of living in for a while and saw God move amazingly. And I want to just highlight some other places just to give you a bit of an insight in what's happening in the world. So there are about 17,000 people groups in the world. What's a people group? It's a group that have their own language, their own culture, their own customs, and they kind of stick together. They have their own way of thinking. Some of them are small. Some of them are huge. Some of the small groups might have a few hundred. Some of the big groups are in the hundreds of millions. The biggest people group on earth are the Han Chinese, about 2 billion people. That's a lot of people. So 7,000 of these 17,000 people groups are considered unreached. That means there's less than 2% Bible-believing Christians in them. This represents about 40% of the world, 3 billion people. And then within that, there's a group called frontier people groups. There's about 5,000 of these people groups. They represent 1.8 billion people, about a quarter of the world's population. 
Less than 0.1% are Christian. Less than 0.1%. And there's no known self-sustaining Christian work in these places, uh, these frontier groups. They're almost all Muslim and Hindu groups. I'll just say a few for you. The northern Yemeni people, 12 million people, they speak Arabic and believe in Islam. There are almost no known Christians amongst them. 12 million people. Turkish people, 56 million people, 0.01% Christian. The Hui in China, you might have heard of them. They're a Muslim people group in China. 13 million, only 1,000 Christians amongst them. 0.007% Christian. Uh, the Ansari in India, 10 million people, they speak Urdu, they believe in Islam. 0.00038% Christians. 40 Christians for 10 million people. So to put it in something we can understand, that's like if Evans Head Presbyterian Church and the Christians in this room were the only Christians in Australia. That's it. The Arain people of Pakistan, 10.8 million people. They speak Punjabi, believe in Islam. There are no known believers. 10.8 million no known believers. The Banya in India, 29 million. They speak Hindi, believe in Hinduism. Only 130 believers. So once again, it's like as if in Australia, this church was it. The only Christians in all of Australia. The Brahmin in India, 59 million. They speak Hindi, believe in Hinduism, 0.01% Christian. The Jat, uh, so that's about 6,000 Christians for 59 million people. The Jat in Pakistan, 32 million, no known believers. 32 million, no known believers? So when you've got people like this, you can't say, well, let the people there reach them. There's no one there to reach them. We'll let the people next door reach them. The people next door also have never heard. We'll let the people next door to the people next door reach them. Well, they've got 100, 200, 300 years of animosity and war between them, so they hate each other. It's like a Jonah situation. It's very difficult for them to reach uh, past each other and, and bring the gospel across that culture. The Manrat, Marathi in India, 30 million. 190 believers. The Pashtun in India, 26 million, 143 Christians. The Rajput in India, 44 million, 0.02% Christian. And here is the biggest unreached people group on earth. Can anyone guess that I haven't already told this? Does anyone know which country has the biggest unreached people group on earth? I didn't know either until I looked it up. Bangladesh. The Sheikh people in Bangladesh. Worldwide, there are around two, 200 million, but in Bangladesh, 136 million people. They believe in Islam, speak Bengali. This is the people that William Carey went to 200 years ago, the great Bible translator. Um, and 200 years later, there still has not been a significant movement amongst them. I, I read everything when I read about these people, everything from no Christians to tens of thousands of Christians, so I don't know which is true. But there's 136 million of them. So by some reckonings, there are less than one Christian per million people amongst them. By some. In others, it's more. We don't know. So a group like this need 2,737 workers just to have one missionary per 50,000 people. They need almost 3,000 workers to go there. The Yadav in India, 58 million, only 3,700 Christians. They need over 1,000 Christians, uh, over 1,000 missionaries to go to them to be, have one per 50,000 
uh, one missionary per 50,000 people. So 3% of missionaries in the world go to these frontier people. 1% of missionary funds go to them. And it makes up to about 29% of the world who have never heard the name of Jesus. They've never heard of Jesus before. I came across this in China. I would say, have you heard of Jesus? Oh, which band is that? Have you heard of Jesus? Oh, where's he from? Oh, no, I've never met him before. Who's that? No knowledge, nothing. The word Bible, God as we know it, nothing, no knowledge. Never heard of Christianity, never heard of Christmas. I came across this in China. And by these stats, you can think of it this way. If every Christian in the world shared with every non-Christian they knew, and all those non-Christians became Christians, there would still be 3 billion non-Christians left. You get it? So for these groups, the only way to reach them is to, for someone to leave their ethnic group, their home, their language, and go to a brand new context. It's the only way to reach them. There's no other way. No other way. They don't have any other way to hear the gospel. And I like to think about my own people group. We don't think about what people group we're from, right? In Australia, we just think, oh, I'm white, whatever that means. But white is not a people group. <laughs> just like Asian is not a people group. Or black is not a people group. <laughs> most of us come from Anglo-Celtic backgrounds, so where most of us are a mix. I have English, English, Irish, Scottish, and Welsh, and I think some German. And I only know that because my mum's into family history. So we went back and found out. And, you know, the gospel came to those people groups as early as two, three hundred years after Christ. But some of these groups have been waiting 2,000 years. They still never heard the gospel. Now, I don't know about you, but that doesn't seem right. That doesn't seem like a great thing. But there are enough churches in the world, plenty, for every church to adopt one of these people groups and send people out. And it's the role of the church to identify people suited for this ministry and to send them out. And not all churches are doing it. But what a privilege to be part of a work like this. What a privilege if you were the first person in one of these tribes to ever share the gospel with them. What a privilege. And this is God's mercy, that he allows us to partner with him in his great work. We're all looking for significance. We're all looking for meaning. What great significance and meaning there is in being part of God's work to reach the world. Last week, I challenged you guys to partner with God on what he's doing in your own heart, in your own walk, in you, to make you more like Jesus. But let's also partner with God with what he's doing in the world. You can pray, you can give, you can go. But we shouldn't be passive. We shouldn't do nothing. We should be part of this great work to reach the world because it's God's heart. He loves everyone, not just Western people, not just people who speak English. <laughs> he loves everyone. He loves Muslims as well. He loves Hindus as well. He loves the people that are worshipping idols. He loves them. He loves the people that are more violent than you, that are more illiterate than you, that are poorer than you. He loves them. The nobodies, he loves them. And so he's inviting us to be part of this work. And I want to encourage some of you in, in this room if there's a trigger in your heart, there's a little thing that goes, I would love to do something like that. Do it. Just do it. There'll be many voices trying to stop you. There'll be many reasons not to go. But it's okay. You can do it. 
and God will be with you. See, the Ninevites, they didn't know as much about God as we do. So they could only say, who knows? Maybe God will have compassion on us. But we have a promise. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And we have another promise. It's the promise that Jesus gave the disciples when he gave the Great Commission. I will be with you. As we go out and share the gospel, he says, I will be with you. Go into all the world and share the gospel with everyone. Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach them to obey everything I have commanded you, and assuredly, I will be with you to the end of the world. So it's so daunting, the thought of this, but he will be with us. See, Jonah thought that God only existed in Israel. So he thought if he went somewhere else, God wouldn't be there. He could flee from God's presence. But he found that God was even at the bottom of the ocean inside a fish. And God is in Dhaka, the capital of Bangladesh. God is in Islamabad, the capital of Pakistan. God is everywhere. When you leave your home and family, you won't be leaving God's presence. He'll go with you. I want to leave with some verses just to leave on our, on our hearts the mercy of God because it's the mercy of God that compels us to share the good news, whether it be with your neighbor next door or someone really far away that you know nothing about. Three reminders of God's mercy, mercy from Lamentations 3, 22 to 23. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. For his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Every, I love that. They are new every morning. Every day I wake up, it's new again. It's like, oops, clean slate again. That's awesome. Psalm 108, 8 to 12. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. And finally, from uh, Romans chapter 5, 8 to 11. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Since, since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were yet enemies... We were reconciled to him through the death of his son. How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. And you can be the bearer of good news. Be reconciled to God. It might be in your Jerusalem, Evan said, your Samaria, New Zealand. <laughs> Your ends of the world, Bangladesh. But God will be with you. And don't forget, God loves everyone. He loves you and he loves the people far away who haven't yet heard. And he loves the neighbor next door who hasn't heard. Let's pray. Dear God, we don't understand everything about you, but we thank you so much for choosing us for loving us. Lord, we pray for our neighbors here in Evans Head. We pray for this town that you would bring revival like you did in Nineveh. That you would sweep through this town by your spirit, make people fall to their knees 
calling out for mercy. That you would grow this church and every other church in this town. And that this town would be known as a place where you are moving mightily. We pray for those places with these massive people groups who've never heard about you, that you will send out workers. Send workers to these places. And help us to follow you with an open Bible and an open map. Send us wherever you would take us. Here we are. Send us, Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen.